Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Hindu Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am your host, Dean Accardi, and today we are discussing Gil Ben-Harut's new and exciting book, Shiva's Saints, The Origins of Devotion in Canada, According to Harihara's Ragalegalu, published in 2018 by Oxford University Press. A scholarly masterpiece, Shiva's Saints provides theoretical insight into sainthood, the politics of commemoration, and the contentious worlds of ever-changing religious and other social identity formations through a close examination of the text and contexts of Harihara's Ragalegalu, a 12th century hagiographical text in Kannada that extols the lives of the early Virashaiva saints in ways distinct from how they are commemorated in later hagiographical texts, especially the most well-known 16th century Shunya Sampadane. In my conversation with author Gil Ben-Harut, we discuss the multiple goals of hagiographical literature, as well as the complications and complexities around what the Virashaivas are most well known for, their bhakti, or inner devotion to Shiva, their egalitarianism, and their challenging of Brahmanical norms. We also delve into the nuances of the social worlds in which Harihara was embedded and to which his Ragalegalu is responding, most especially who Harihara casts as distinct but familial others versus those intimate others who should be kept out of the community. Without further ado, let us now turn to my recent interview with Gil Ben-Harut. Hello, Gil. Welcome to New Books in Hindu Studies. Uh, It's a pleasure to be interviewing you and a great pleasure to have um, read your excellent book. Um, But before we jump into the content of your book, Shiva's Saints, I would first like to ask you a more biographical question. Uh, How did you come to this field of study? And what is your story of becoming a scholar? How did you come to focus on this specific topic of your book? Hi, Dean. And um, thank you for having me on uh, this wonderful program. Um, Okay. uh, So my kind of personal biographical background um, begins with me uh, being Israeli in my origins and... uh, like many Israelis uh, after the army in the early 20s uh, who go backpacking in India, um, I was one of them. And um, I was deeply impressed and, and moved by, by India in general on, on its, uh, many levels. Um, and when I decided uh, to kind of pursue professional career, I, uh, it was almost an obvious choice to seek that um, this uh, area of India studies in Israel, luckily this field is is, is pretty much very developed, um, and we have some luminaries, um, David Schulman, Eagle Bronner, and others, and just a wonderful uh, incubator for uh, India studies on different levels. So I started there, and um, maybe a little bit moving forward into the project that brought forth this book, Shiva's Saints, 
Um, I had two moments during my master's in Israel before moving to the U.S. Uh, for my Ph.D. studies where uh, I, I, I took a decision to, to delve deeply into Canada uh, culture or pre-modern literature. One of these two moments was when I started working with H.V. Nagaraja Rao, who uh, visited Israel and worked with um, uh, Israeli scholars on Sanskrit. He's a wonderful Sanskritist, um, a, a wonderful person in general. I also visited him in Mysore, Karnataka, which is the region uh, in which Canada is spoken. So uh, that introduction to Canada culture as a lived tradition was really new to me, coming from Sanskrit and the, the more the, the really textual textual studies and culture into a living culture. And just to uh, be acquainted with this vast literary culture of a regional language, living language, was was a, a delight for me. Um, and then there was a second moment uh, during that period of my master's uh, when I came across uh, A.K. Ramanujan's uh, speaking of Shiva, this very famous book, um, very popular in uh, introduction classes to Hinduism and to devotional religion. Uh, it's, it's a translation of, of poems called Vachana, the Vachana poetry, which was written in Kannada uh, in the early centuries of the second millennium, uh, it, it captivated me. Um, the, the religious vision, this uh, liberal, lyrical um, language so long ago, eight, 800 years ago, um, um, really touched me. I was intrigued by, by these Shaivas and their the stories about their lives um, fascinated me. So, so that was the direction I was aiming for when I moved to... Um, to the U.S. Um, and started my Ph.D. at Emory University at the um, Graduate Division of Religion there. Um, during my the early moments of my Ph.D. studies at Emory, I um, you know, went back and forth to Karnataka, to India, to work on my Kannada, and I almost accidentally came across uh, this particular text, which is the center of this book. Um, it's, it's written by a poet called Harihara, um, and it's generally called, the text is called Ragalegalu, or in its fuller name, Shiva Sharanara Ragalegalu, which could be translated as uh, Ragale poems for Shiva's saints. Uh, I said I came across it by chance because I was working on a particular story of a saint, a Shaiva saint from the Canada regions around the 12th century. It's a, it's a very peculiar story. Um, the saint is told to um, is said to have beheaded his own head, decapitated himself during a wager with a Jain, a member of another religion, uh, at a temple ground. So they had a, a wager over the temple. And this Shaiva saint uh, won the contest by reconnecting his head and, 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 and surviving this ordeal. Uh, what, what intrigued me especially was the historical resonances because the temple was there. The, the, even the, uh, the sword or the knife that he used to sever his head is there. The inscription is there. So there is a kind of a very historical mode of presenting the story, which is obviously fantastic. Uh, and I, I was intrigued by this um, 
um, what the complications of this. And I was looking for early sources when I came across Harihara's version of this story that no one worked with. So there was one inscription, there was another early source translated to English. Harihara's version was never dealt with in English scholarship, and, and, and he had a lot to say in the sense that his version was very different than the others. So that kind of drew my attention to this uh, fantastic corpus called the Ragalegalu, the saint stories by Harihara, uh, to which my uh, monograph, Shiva's Saints, is dedicated. Thank you for that, Gil. Um, there's much more to the story um, than I had known before, so I appreciate your telling us more about how you came to um, this topic of study. The first th question I'd like to ask you with regard to the book, and you started mentioning this in your response um, to the last question, is that um, there appears to be a lot of thought that you have put into the title of your book, Shiva's Saints, The Origins of Devotion in Canada, according to Harihara's Ragalegalu with specific words being carefully chosen to engage a number of pressing debates in particular ways. Could you explain the title in the context of the arguments you are making in your book and the larger goals and objectives you wish to achieve through the book? And how does Harihara's uh, Ragalegalu serve as a means by which to address these larger issues? Uh, sure, Dean. Um, interestingly enough, when I you know, came to think about the title of the book, it sort of appeared uh, rather naturally, having written the book, um, but but the fact that you presented it as as effectively addressing some of the major themes um, makes it a good way of of kind of introducing what I'm doing in this book. So the main title of the book is Shiva's Saints, and I'm I'm using the term saints as a as a translation of a Kannada word, which is used to refer to these 12th century figures. This, uh, the word is Sharana, and this is how they are uh, familiar, how they're known in the Kannada landscape as the Sharanas of the 12th century, the refuge seekers of God, of the God, Shiva. Um, so by, by calling it the book Shiva's Saints, I'm, I'm, I'm immediately addressing the fact that I, I work with these figures in, in, in a broader category uh, of of the saint, which is admittedly a, a discourse in religious studies that that grows out of Christianity, right? The saint. Uh, I'm, I, I am using it in an analytical manner, um, and I explain in my book why I choose why I chose to call them, to term them, to address them as uh, saints. Um, I mean, on on the onset, we can say that saints immediately focuses our readings of these Shaiva figures through the lens of a life story, which is edified. Uh, it immediately generates questions about um, how we read hagiographies. And uh, I, I, I hope to say a little bit more about that uh, later on in the interview. Um, the subtitle of the book, The Origins of Devotion in Canada, really touches on, on an entrenched conversation, an ongoing, sometimes even heated debate um, on how the uh, Shaiva devotional tradition began in the uh, Canada-speaking region. Uh, maybe a few words of introduction. This um, tradition today is known as the Vira Shaiva 
or Lingayat, the Virashaivas, the Lingayats of the Karnataka states. Uh, it's a it's a collection of different communities. Some of them are very impressively self-confident, well-organized, very present in the uh, political, social, economical landscape of Karnataka today. Some of them own a lot of the colleges um, and, and, and the kind of well-presented in, in, in today's society in Karnataka. Um, part of the conversation about Virashaivas today uh, and I'm using Virashaiva instead of Lingayata uh, just for terms of uh, practicality. Uh, part of the discussion about Virashaivas today is directly linked to the memory of the early Sharanas, the early saints of the 12th century, the Vachana poetry that's, it, that is attributed to them, um, kind of becomes, or, or it's this memory and this poetry is invoked many times when talking about the here and now of the Virashaivas in Karnataka. I, I should briefly mention that the Virashaivas are, 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 are kind of uh, have their own distinct set of practices and religious and social identity. They, they carry a small emblem of, of the god Shiva, uh, which is the linga, that they carry on their body and they worship on their left hands. Um, they do not cremate their dead as the kind of general, long the, the general practices of Hinduism, but they bury them. Widows are allowed to remarry. They're all kind of very distinct uh, practices and communal formations. Um, the, the political debate around Virashaivas today in Karnataka, which is something that I'm not directly dealing with in my book, um, takes on different directions. Uh, in the recent elections last year, um, there was a huge push. I think it, it passed to declare Virashaivism as a separate religion, as a religious minority, separate from Hinduism. So they are definitely in the, the front line of, of today's society. Uh, the, the, the 12th century saints are... In the, in, in, in the contemporary debates, the 12th century saints are invoked to give a kind of historical hold to the claims of today's communities. And, and, and this is why there is such an interest in how those saints lived. What did they proclaim? What did they teach? What were their values? Um, and so on and so forth in contemporary conversations. Now, when I, as a scholar, you know, when I approach this, this big question mark of the 12th century, I'm, I'm my kind of as the initial step I'm taking is asking, well, how do we know what we know about uh, these figures? Um, what are the, uh, the sources that we turn to, that we read, that we kind of pass on? from one generation to another and or discover. And uh, the, the kind of initial, uh, this initial question brought uh, somewhat surprising answers because in, in kind of hard historical terms, there are very little sources, contemporary sources about the 12th century. We do have a lot of inscriptions that involve local kings, 
um, and rulers and and battles and temple consecrations, but but very scant material which directly addresses the um, the what we call today the Vita Shaiva, those Shaiva devotees, those Shaivas of the 12th century. Just to give a concrete example, the earliest inscription of the most prominent figure associated with the 12th century, who is Vasavana, uh, is produced only a century later, in the middle of the 13th century. So we, we, we find it hard to kind of um, lay out a, a, a fixed or stable history uh, if we address the kind of expected sources of hard evidence. Um, instead of that, we turn to uh, literature, and, and, and here also there is a distinction to be made between the, um, the vachanas, which I mentioned earlier, the vachanas, this vast, uh, ever-growing corpus of, of uh, lyrical poetry. These are uh, short poems. Um, many of them are, are uh, striking for many reasons, but uh, as I mentioned before, they, they are uh, they're, they're amazing. <laughs> Reading the Vachanas involves some kind of a spiritual uh, um, engagement. Uh, they, 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 they have a very succinct, penetrating way of putting out perennial issues of belief, of, of metaphysical realities, also of society. They're very compelling in that sense. But if we are trying to pinpoint and understand historical processes of the 12th century by reading the Vachanas, we, 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 we face very concrete problems. Uh, the first one is the exact lyrical nature of the Vachanas. They, they have very little to say in terms of context of uh, um, who, um, who met who when, or what were the events that happened during the production of those Vachanas. The Vachanas themselves are very bare and abstract. There are other issues with the Vachanas that make their historical use uh, problematic. Um, they were uh, orally transmitted uh, for two or three centuries before written down for the first time in the 15th century. Um, and when they were collected and written down, there there is clear evidence that it was done with a very specific kind of ideology in mind or several ideologies. There is a multivocality to the Vachanas, which means that people of different perceptions of the early tradition would invoke or quote a vachana, just pick and choose the vachana that will serve your own ideological stance. And so, so there is a plethora of, of um, approaches, ideologies in the vachana corpus, So, which makes a, a, a kind of the scholar's work of, of trying to uh, process these into a vision, into a stance, something of a, of a maybe impossible mission. Um, so this is one very uh, uh, prominent uh, group of texts that is oftentimes used in an uncriti- uncritical manner to talk about the 12th century. The third group of, of sources are the, the, is the, the literature, what I call written literature, uh, which is 
can be distinguished from vaginas in that that it's 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 first of all it was written in its production it, it follows meter it's uh, it's elaborate it's extensive and it's highly descriptive um, much of this literature is narrative meaning that it's exactly invested in conveying uh, social um, social events I'm, I'm kind of I'm not going right now into the question of history or not I will get to it a bit later um, but but there is a lot of material that that can be worked out out of these literary sources and and Harihara's Ragalegalu was the first narrative account of the 12th century saints uh, and it, it was written fairly uh, uh, early yeah probably around the uh, early 13th century, meaning only a few decades after the uh, purported events of the saints. By that, it, it, it gives us uh, an access, maybe not to the 12th century, but it gives us a kind of a cultural snapshot of how these saints were understood very soon after their uh, actions in the early 13th century, which I found uh, intriguing. Uh, it's also an incredibly clear account of the saints. There is a, a clear sense that Harihara wants to describe each saint, the, 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 the birth, the life, the events, the significances, and then he moves on to another saint and another saint. So um, there is a kind of very inviting uh, quality to the Regalegalu, which I uh, I was happy to embrace. Um and and this is what this work is about. Thank you. Yeah. So one of the things that I also found intriguing in your book is that um, there's a kind of there are a, a number of different ways of in which you have read Harihara's Ragalegalu. In addition to identifying it as a hagiography, which I would like you to address, you evaluate it as literature, as a devotional aid, as a product of particular social and political contexts, or as a prescriptive text aiming to normalize Harihara's particular interpretation over other possible narratives of these saints. So these different reading practices have a kind of profound impact on your ability to generate different insights into the text. So in regard to this, I have three interrelated questions. First, what is the significance of identifying this text as, a, as hagiography? Then, how do you navigate these different reading practices, and how do they generate different insights into the devotional and sociopolitical implications of the Ragalegalu? Right. So um, indeed, when I started reading the Regalegalu, it was very early on. It became clear to me that um, I need to develop some reading strategies, um, some ways for meaning making of uh, these stories. And the more I kind of delved into it, kind of a bigger analytical creature uh, developed. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's good to start with this text as hagiography. Uh, what is hagiography, right? It's a writing of saints' lives. Again, it's, it's an analytical category I'm, I'm employing here, borrowed from uh, a different uh, tradition, uh, Western, European. Um, but I would argue that this text works well when we examine it as a hagiography. Hagiography is, um, in, in general terms, is a particular uh, 
kind of of a mythical text, right? Any any myth in whatever form um, is is a text that tries to shape our contemporary attitudes and worldviews, whether it's false or true, whether it succeeds or not. It aims for this very uh, uh, intense influence on us, the, the readers. And I would argue that hagiography is a particular uh, uh, intense form of making tight claims about the intended audience of the hagiography, which are the uh, religious communities who are intended to read it. Um, so, so hagiography is, is a text that meant to shape people's lives and people's uh, experiences according to a certain religious uh, paradigm and and by that it is it maintains such close relationships with its audience with the need to appeal to them that it's very easy to contextualize or to see the relationship between the text and its context in the hagiography we can also think about hagiography uh, in in formal terms it's a, it's a narrative that is uh, patterned, right? It follows certain motifs um, that are repeated in many of the stories. So many times we have the prenatal and the posthumous uh, career of the saints, with oftentimes, which oftentimes shed light on what he did on earth. Um, we also usually get a, a certain clear purpose for the saint's existence on earth, something uh, which is explicitly argued sometimes and, and is of value for us. Um, in terms of the events of the narrative uh, during the saint's life, right, we will probably read about miracles on one hand, and then on the other hand, highly realistic uh, social context, right? So this, this mixture of miracles and, and realism uh, begs some kind of an interpretive framework. Also, in general, hagiographies are rich with religious content. Uh, for example, rituals. How are rituals performed? How they were constituted following a particular event associated with a certain saint's life? All this makes a very fertile ground for excavating cultural knowledge. Uh, and, and I think it applies... Uh, very well in the case of Harihara, or or at least I try to make a case for it. At the same time, we're obviously not reading history, right? We're reading, um, um, like I said before, a cultural snapshot, uh, a window uh, to the attitudes, values, dispositions, concerns, anxieties of certain parts of, of a culture in a particular moment in history. And, and that forces us to develop a sophisticated reading strategy, uh, which you address too in your question. So multiple strategies of reading and how to navigate between these different readings of, of, of the Ragalegalu. I mean, I, I, I have to say kind of, you know, as a disclaimer, um, the way I interpret the Ragalegalu or the multiple ways I interpret it, uh, all should be regarded as an interpretation, interpretation of a text. It's, it's, it's an argument about the text that can be supported, um, it can be convincing, and it's also uh, given to debate 
into a rethinking. Um, but once we approach the question of reading through the lens of interpretation, we can point to certain criteria that uh, or tools that assist us in developing interpretation of the text as a whole, of uh, a particular saint's life, or particular episodes within one uh, saint's life story. So uh, those tools, uh, I think foremostly, is the issue of, of being sensitive to textural or textural markers, right? The word texture is of importance here, and I'm, I'm borrowing it from an important work by Subramaniam and Rana Rao and Shulman from this milieu, um, basically that calls to develop sensibilities to the text uh, in its myriad facets, right? So attention to lexical choices, attention to authorial voice, a special attention to shifts in the tone of the author, in the shift of the descriptions, which is from description to narrative progression. Um, we can move forward to how the narrative itself progresses. Um, there are stylistic issues uh, of weight in this process. So all these elements are incredibly um, rich and uh, useful if we want to develop an argument about the text. Um, these are operate within the text, but we have also a context, which is, I think, in the most concrete sense, it's the literary context of the work. So you know, I turn in my work to examine the, the, the literary culture out of which, or maybe against which, Harihara is writing Deragalegalu. And I also turn to look at similar Shaiva texts that were produced in South India um, around the same time, maybe a little bit earlier in, the, in Tamil Nadu, in the Andhra regions of Telugu. Um, developments that, that indicate uh, not only a concrete historical contact, which is of value in itself, but also help us to examine a broader reference of, uh, of, of a, an imaginaire, Right, imaginaire, this kind of broad system of symbols, of stories, of literary figures that keep on popping in different texts, maybe in different ways, maybe for making different arguments, but they are nevertheless shared in an intertextuality that begs certain inter interpretations. Um, and, and the last point I want to make uh, in answering your question is the uh, what kind of insights we can we can find uh, or develop from applying multiple strategies of readings and, and, and they are equally diverse and apply to different areas of life. Um, so for example, I'm, you know, all this is very abstract, but I'm going to try and give something concrete. So uh, if I'm, if we're reading a same story and suddenly Harihara goes into a long passage describing ritual action, Right, a choice of flowers and then bringing them to the to the image of the god and a certain um, worship with 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 incense and lamp or a certain way of dressing up and so on and so forth. Um, that level of the de de detail uh, uh, suggests that maybe he's doing um, or he's he's offering a prescription, 
a ritual prescription to the immediate audience, sort of a pedagogical educational use, which is, I think, is a fairly direct way of reading those specific ritual passages. But then if we turn elsewhere in the text and the same saint uh, would be described doing something very extreme, right? Maybe an extreme act of violence, either to himself or to his uh, surrounding uh, people, but, but some kind of an extreme action. Well, here, to read it in a prescription sense doesn't make much sense, right? It, it's, I mean, yeah, we're, we're, there are stories, famous stories, stories that are very popular and beloved by these communities about a devotee who gouges out his own eye to give it to the god, or a, a, a loving couple who, who, who sacrifice their own son, beloved son, to the God. And we can't read these as prescriptions. It, it, it's, it doesn't make sense that whole communities, normative communities existing till today were, were eagerly learning about how to cook their own children. Uh, I don't think so. Although I wouldn't preclude the possibility of such readings, extreme readings at the margins uh, of society. But I think in, in the mainstream sense, we're dealing with something else. We're not dealing with a prescription. We're switching to a different uh, uh, different role of the text, which is uh, maybe more edifying, maybe meant to generate a certain piety, a certain kind of emotional response, which is deep for the readers, definitely not um, literal. And then uh, another element of the text and another reading strategy is to locate the silences of the text, the, the passages that are clearly reactionary to certain realities. Uh, maybe I, I'll give here an example to make this concrete. Harihara writes about several saints involved in inter-religious marriage, marriages, and he's obviously not happy with that. All these stories end up with some kind of cataclysm, right? Some kind of mass violence, mass conversion, um, particularly a, a, of a religious group that is opponent to the uh, adversary to the Shaivas, which are the Jains. I'll talk about them uh, later on. But so the, the point I'm making is that Harihara is clearly writing against something which is of a major concern to him and maybe by implication to his intended audience. So we can certainly see Harihara, we can hear Harihara tells us, do not engage in interreligious marriages. But what we can extract from this very loud voice is a more basic admittance that they are an issue. That interreligious marriages, as much as he's not happy about them, are a real concern. So in fact, those kind of um, reactionary moments or silences of Harihara are the most significant in historical lens. Thank you. Um, I, you touched upon a um, a key part that I noticed in in your text, which is um, about this question of kind of being an example versus being an exemplar. I think you cite um, Jack Hawley as one of the people that gave this framework, and yet you kind of move beyond just these two options, but also find other um, ways of interpreting or understanding what is at stake in these stories for Harihara. 
Um, so this moves me to kind of thinking about um, the next few chapters in your books. Um, in chapter two, you analyze uh, Harihara's depiction of the interiority of the saints, kind of the inner devotional lives of these bhaktas. Whereas in chapters three and four, you address the external social worlds of the saints, first engaging the kind of often discussed egalitarianism of these religious traditions, and then engaging the kind of specific rules and practices of this religious community that are often understood as breaking normative Brahmanical practices, such as the consumption of meat, um, or as you mentioned before, the kind of burial instead of cremation or these other sorts of practices. So... Um, in regards to these, um, both the interiority of the saints as well as the uh, kind of external social worlds, I was wondering, how do you interpret these three aspects of the saints' lives in Harihara's Ragaleglu, this interior devotion, the egalitarianism, and the challenging of normative practices? How do they interface with each other, and what are the deeper implications of your analysis of them? Sure. Um, well, the I organized, when I sat down to write the book, I decided to organize it thematically, right? Presenting these different realms of interpretation or relation to the Ragalegalu according to a certain movement, starting from the interiority of the Bhakta, the devotee, as, as he or she is prescribed in the Ragalegalu, and then moving outward into social interaction uh, within the community, of devotees and then beyond with uh, religious others and uh, political uh, entities uh, surrounding the community. So really, if we, we were looking for something that we can identify as a common thread in, in a really bewildering uh, plethora of stories about uh, a very diverse cadre of saints, um, we 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 have some preliminary we have we have a very basic problem because because how do how can we connect a a kind of a a potter who is working on his pots in his backyard how can we connect him with a mystic who uh, renounces society or uh, or with a minister at a king's court who who counts money for him what what is the uh, connecting thread and and, and, and I think what comes out when reading the Ragalegalu stories in all their diversity is that these, these figures are uh, emotionally invested in, in, in devotion to the god Shiva in, in a very uncompromising way. Uh, we could mention other traditions in comparison. Not all of them are as extreme in their devotional zeal as, as this uh, tradition. Other traditions are. Definitely the Tamil Shaivas, uh, which are, again, interrelated, interconnected with this tradition. The Nyanmars uh, are uh, similar in that regard. But within the Ragalegalu, uh, you find very clear evidence that the emotional quality is of major importance to Harihara. He uses these terms to describe uh, emotions of devotion, such as uh, Bhaya Bhakti. Right, Bhaya Bhakti, it's a dvandva, it's a compound of two words. Uh, bhakti, we kind of um, regularly understand as, as devotion. Uh, bhaya is, is a little bit more problematic. Bhaya is usually translated in, 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 in negative terms as a, as a 
is terrible, is uh, fearful. But if we see Bhaya Bhakti, if we examine where it's invoked in Harihara's text, we see that it, it oftentimes is invoked in, in moments of piety when, there, when the saint meets uh, his or her God. So th- there is a kind of a sense of, of uh, awe and devotion, right? This kind of centrality of the emotive condition of the saint in those moments, and it's shared across the stories. A similar term that is ubiquitous in the text is yeka nishthe, right? Yeka nishthe, single-minded dedication. To who? To the god Shiva. And and indeed, the, these stories present us with figures who are, who are single-minded. They are immersed in their devotion to the god. They are non-reflective. You see many times that their actions are not um, don't take into account any com- any consequences. Um, they are uh, immediate in their action in the world, and I think that also works very well with Harihara's own voice, which uh, which is personal, which is emotional, with a lot of exclamation marks. So this inner devotion is a wonderful starting point, I think, to kind of connect figures who are very different in the way they understand the God, in the way they worship the God. Uh, Moving to to touch on this issue of egalitarianism, which is indeed very, very common in today's discussions about Virashaivas, right? So some promulgators of the tradition in some forms of the tradition today kind of look back at at the 12th century saints as as egalitarians par excellence, Uh, words like democratic, uh, gender equal, are often invoked in order to make contemporary arguments. Um, and, and indeed, one, one cannot deny the centrality of, of egalitarian notions in Teragalegalur, right? There is, again, there is a term for it that Harihara invokes, samashile, right? Equal conduct, equal etiquette. Uh, but uh, once we read the stories from close, we see how this ideal of egalitarianism is is qualified and problematized uh, in important ways. So for one, um, egalitarianism uh, in the stories is only uh, only present when we're talking about a, a religious framework, in a tight religious framework. Only uh, when there is ritual action involves several devotees, this principle of equal conduct uh, is invoked. Um, where where it's not a concern for Harihara is the social condition of the devotees outside of religious belief. He also shows very little interest. In fact, he shows only antagonism to those who are not Shaivas. So if we're talking about egalitarianism, it's a very different sort of egalitarianism that we consider today in contemporary parlance in a strictly social sense. Another element that, that qualifies this egalitarianism in the early period are the uh, real-life constraints that uh, those Shaivas encounter in the stories. So, for example, women who are indeed receive a lot of um, agency in, in this tradition in general and in this particular sto- in these particular stories, much more than in the kind of, you know, imagined Brahminical male-centered uh, authority, however we wish to read it or imagine it. Uh, at the same time, uh, women are bounded by their roles as women in society. So Akamahadevi, which is uh, surely the most famous 
a female figure of among the early saints and and, and in general and, and and wonderful poetess of vachana poetry when when she walks out on her husband in the ragalegalu because uh, of him not being an ardent shaiva her only reserve resort is to uh renunciation. She's not reintegrated into society in the way that she was before the marriage. So she, she pays a price, in other words, for her uh, devotion. Uh, similarly, uh, work, which is completely exonerated by Harihara from any sense of Brahminical impurity, right, applied to kind of low caste professions, which is a wonderful, uh, has a wonderful correspondence with modern values. At the same time, those um, the, this focus on legitimizing labor and, and specific work uh, identities really minimizes the possibility of social mobility, of changing one's profession, which is really not not even doesn't arise, never arise in these stories, uh, understandably in the con- in their historical context. So, uh, egalitarianism, yes, but with uh, I think very important qualification added to it. Um, lastly, I want to relate to this question of uh, Harihara's approach to the the, the kind of uh, the resistance to normative Brahminical mainstream practices, a resistance that is usually attributed or identified with Virashaivism in general. And again, we cannot uh, deny reading those stories that there is an antipathy towards any kind of codified uh, ritualistic mode of living uh, uh, in favor, of course, of devotional sentiments. But to say that that the the Ragalegalu presents a vision which is anti-Brahminical or anti-temple worship uh, in in the manner that the early tradition is understood today by some is, is is a radical misreading of the text. So temple is ubiquitous and very positively presented in the Ragalegalu, a contrast to very famous vachanas often quoted in scholarship, even Brahminical practices. Of course, Brahminism in the sense of social exclusion is un- intolerable by Harihara because of that ritual, Shaiva, Shaiva ritual arena, which is egalitarian. He cannot stand those claims for impurity invoked by certain Brahmins. At the same time, he does defend some Brahminical practices, such as vegetarianism, um, there is a sense of legitimizing Brahminical uh, elite as, as, as an elitist class, as, a, as an elite class. So Brahmins operate at the, at the, the king's court, including good Shaiva saints. There is nothing wrong about it. Uh, they are educated and so on and so forth. The moment where Harihara puts a stop to Brahminical identity is once, as I said before, it steps on practices of other communities. So if another Shaiva wishes to worship Shiva through meat consumption, which is something, again, intolerable within Brahminism, uh, Harihara definitely will legitimize it. But but what we get from this is a very complicated social picture, right? So we, we have this legitimization of Brahmins here and legitimization of heterodox or uh, transgressive practices on the other hand, and there are different ways of worshipping Shiva, and they're not always uh, commensurate with each other. So what I'm, what I'm arguing is that Harihara is in fact uh, uh, trying to appeal to different communities 
uh, and in different ways. And, and this is a very different way of thinking about the early tradition if we compare it with the, this kind of notion of Virashaivas as an, a, a very bounded sect with very clear set of practices and do's and do nots. Um, there are real life complexities in Daragalegalu and they are very apparent and we need to address these. Thank you for that. Um, I, I especially appreciate how you point out that um, even for uh, Harihara, there's a sense of, okay, there's there are the saints, there is our um, community, but there are other Shaiva communities. And, and these chapters address these kind of relationships or how he handles um, kind of internal interactions amongst Shaivas. And this is in contrast to what you address in chapters five and six, where you shift your focus from how Harihara handles the interior lives and the social interactions amongst these Shaiva saints and devotees to how Harihara engages two distinct kinds of social others. First, the non-Shaiva royalty and Vaishnava Brahmins in the royal court. And second, the Jains, whom you describe as the intimate holy other. How and why does Harihara distinguish these two groups of others? And what do you find to be the significance of these distinct otherings? Well, um, maybe I should begin with, with kind of a quick remark about the relation of Harihara to royalty, right? We, again, the, there is a huge lacuna in our knowledge about the, the history of the region. We know we know something about the, the kings and, and, and kind of meaningful events in their lives. We, we don't really know how these courts operated uh, in any historical manner, um, although some good work is being done, I think, these days, and, and it is promising. Um, but in general, what we do find in Hariara is is antipathy, antipathy and rejection of court life. Uh, it's 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 a worldly arena, right? Uh, when in this tradition, a non-Shaiva is called Bhavi, a worldling, right? And and the king is embodiment of worldly power, and as such, he's immediately suspicious for Harihara. Uh, and then on the other hand, we see repeated consistent interest in the court by Harihara. Many of his saints operate at the court. In fact, they feel comfortable to some extent at the court. They're especially good in counting money, for example. So we, we have a complicated picture here of sort of um, imagining the court as a, as a resource, a very, a very useful resource for the betterment of the Shaivas, but at the same time, a place which is uh, um, negative by its very nature of being non, non-committed to Shaiva devotion. Uh, moving to, to, to discuss the religious others of, 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 of the Ragalegalu, you asked about the, um, how uh, I'm approaching this question and, and why, how can we explain this uh, religious othering? And I think the how is easier to discuss than the why, right? So um, the how, uh, how the religious others are uh, discussed in the text is, is pretty apparent. Um, and, and people noted that this tradition is very explicit in its antagonizing of other religions, but no one really delved into the the relationships and what can be um, assumed uh, from these stories. I think in general, the issue of religious other 
is of major importance today, right? It, it, it applies to India in general and the challenges it, challenges it faces regarding uh, different religious communities um, in politics and in society. It has a particular uh, sense in Karnataka with the local uh, very ancient uh, Jain community with Muslims, um, and 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 it also applies in a kind of a broader sense. Religious other is an important ingredient in what constitutes Hinduism, in whatever way we wish to to think about it. Um, so there is a, um, there is a lot to be said here, uh, but but I, I will only say very quickly. So reading the stories of the Sharanas. Uh, in Hariyada's text, one encounters two distinct groups of religious others. One are the Vaishnavas, um, Brahmins, always Brahmins, always located at the court, right? always these high officials. And then the Jains, who everywhere but at the court. <laughs> they're at the temple, they're at markets, uh, they're at the house, right? They are implicated in inter-religious marriages that I mentioned earlier with Shaivas. So first of all, there is a very clear typology in the stories between the Vaishnavas, who are ministers, and the Jains, who are merchants, who are worshippers of their own kind. And then the treatment of these two separate groups is very different again. So Harihara, um, although the Vaishnavas are derided by him, they receive, they are accommodated in the stories. They are, um, there is always a hope of convincing them, of showing them the greatness of, of the Shaiva faith. There are some acknowledged, shared uh, uh, cultural background to the Vaishnava Brahmins and the Shaivas, you know, the Agamas, the Vedas, in whatever, they don't need to be taken in, in, in the same sense, but they are shared between these groups. Um, the, the Jains are projected in this text as something completely different. They are completely alien or alienated, right? They have uh, nothing that can be accommodated with. They, in the end of, the, of, the, of most stories, they are either annihilated in large number, paradigms, 8,000 Jains are, are, uh, are killed, or they are... Uh, converted en masse to to Shaivism. So it's a very different treatment of these two groups. And at the same time, there is something which is a little bit paradoxical. The Vaishnava Brahmins located at the court have a very limited hold, very limited engagement with Shaivas. It's only at the court, around political intrigues, around money distributions and getting the king's patronage, which kind of puts them in a very elitist, distinct, separated realm from day-to-day Shaiva encounters. The Jains, on the other hand, as, as can be already, uh, uh, as I already implied to earlier, are met everywhere, right? So when the Shaiva goes, he, he overhears a Jaina at the market. He, he, he argues with a Jain at the temple. And the worst case from Harihara's point of view is that they marry each other. And, and there must be a certain amount of shared cultural uh, life to be uh, have to be had between these two groups. In other words, if a Shaiva married Jaina and the text complains about that, we must assume, uh, at least in the minds of the intended audience, a certain acceptance of shared rituals, such as the marriage rituals, uh, shared practices, such as cooking together, um, maybe worship, 
maybe uh, clothes. So all these elements show that, in fact, the, this, this very harsh antagonizing of genes might indicate closer relationships and, and maybe, maybe even mingling um, among communities, which Harihara tried to argue against. So to go back to the larger question of the religious other in the Regalegalu, what are the significances? Well, first of all, um, the, the, what we see in the Ragalegalu complicates any simplified readings of, of conflict between the communities in history. Uh, and, and we do find that. Uh, it is a matter of fact that many of the Jain temples in Karnataka were uh, converted into Shaivism. It's not clear in what manner. Was it a violent conversion, a forced one, or rather a kind of communal volitionary evolution or, or change? Those are very complicated answers. I do not attempt even to, to provide a hermetic answer. On the contrary, I want to complicate this, the thought, this idea of understanding the religious history or interreligious conflict in the region by this, uh, the reading that I just offered. And, and second point, um, which is also applicable to today, religious identities are complex. Uh, they're flexible. They change. They are interactional, um, the contextual, um, and they measured in, in different distances from others at a given context. So that's, that's a lesson that I think we need to take with us for today as well. Thank you, Gil. Um, so um, I appreciate such, um, in your book, having such kind of rich and nuanced and kind of sensitive um, um, approaches and interpretations to such a kind of um, rarely examined um, part of this uh, tradition and writings about this tradition. Um, and I, um, I sincerely hope that um, many people, uh, both in the uh, academic world as well as um, everyday people in South Asia uh, and elsewhere, uh, end up reading your book um, because I think it can have profound impacts on these contemporary debates. As you as you note, that there's uh, brought forward many uh, arguments out of this uh, out of reading certain texts from the tradition as to how society should be shaped today so my my next question for you though is then you know how do you see or hope this book contributes to the kind of either the broader literature and emerging scholarship on kind of the devotional traditions or even these kind of current political debates that are happening around these traditions and how they should be approached and considered and situated in uh, the world today. Perhaps I should start with saying something general about Canada scholarship. Um, Canada culture literature is uh, commonly frequently acknowledged in scholarship today as a highly rich and varied uh, universe. Um, we're talking about an ongoing uh, literary production of uh, at least uh, 15 centuries. We have access to most of that literature um, and, and equally important is the modern production of Canada literature, which is exceptionally successful, even if we measure it in terms of the uh, number of Canada poets and authors who receive national recognition in India today. So we're, we're dealing here with a wonderful 
rich, incredibly rich, complicated um, culture, and and which is almost in an opposite way treated in scholarship today uh, as neglected. And there are there are probably historical reasons for this that we we cannot go into all of them. I mean, it's enough to think about. Karnataka uh, in the colonial period, right, area without a major port outside of India. <laughs> one, one of those early moments that kind of maybe shaped the way that we are working with India, interfacing with India through scholarship today. Th- those ways need to be uh, developed further. Um, in, in a very concrete sense, we need to train more uh, scholars in Canada, language and literature and culture. Uh, one huge step towards this is the AWS uh, Canada Language Program, um, the American Institute for Indian Studies, uh, in which I studied the. I took my advanced Canada year, and was v- crucial for my for my work. So. Yes, yes, and more. We need more. Um, now, uh, to talk specifically about my work in, 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 in terms of the scholarship about Canada, uh, my book focuses on a particularly intriguing moment, I would argue, in Canada literature, right? There is a, this 12th, 13th century, the appearance of the Vachana and then the Ragalegalu, and then additional literature clearly marks a shift in literary practices of the region. A radical shift, one would say, from focus on courtly literary production, which which has tight links to kings, uh, which is very intricate in its style, which builds directly from uh, the the kind of pan-Indian Sanskritic uh, cosmopolitan Sanskrit is, is famously argued by Shelton Pollock. And we have in this moment of the 12th, 13th century, uh, rise, appearance of something else, something that's much more attuned to Deshi, to local literature, local language, local meters. The themes are different. The forms are different. Uh, so I hope this book will will encourage people to take closer look into Canada with with kind of uh, literary sensibilities to historical changes over time. I think that's an exciting area. With specifically about the devotional culture that grew up and developed in the Canada-speaking region, definitely not limited to Shaivism, um, with much more uh, exciting realms like the Haridasa Sahitya and others. Um, it's such a prolific universe. Uh, really, uh, people should just read more texts. Just go uh, learn Canada, pick up texts, um, broaden, expand the canvas of what we know today. Um, and and I think that the potential for discoveries is almost endless if we think about it. Uh, in terms of the implication of my work to uh, political debates today, I, I make no claims. Um, I think the political debates today in Karnataka about Vira Shaivism and, and related issues have their own logic and they have their own history and, and we should accept it. We should um, definitely engage with it, but but notice its own um, trajectories. Uh, so I'm not making any direct claims about today, except for one, and that is to uh, really encourage and urge people in Karnataka, people who are Kannadigas, to read more of their own pre-modern literature. Um, I think there is a general uh, incorrect uh, 
even a cliche that, that uh, pre-modern Canada is hard to read by modern Canada speakers. And I, I think that that's, that's utterly wrong. I think it's, it's, it's not that different and it's definitely exciting and promising. It's definitely not boring. <laughs> so um, I would, my only claim about the contemporary politics and societies, current is just a general call to see the complex historical picture by paying attention to what, what is out there and develop a nuanced approach, which I think is what we in the academy are ultimately invested in, right? We're invested in, in generating, encouraging, uh, enhancing nuance. Thank you. And, uh, and thank you again for this incredible book. I, I sincerely hope that uh, it's, um, is widely read um, and has the kind of impact and uh, generates the kind of nuanced, sensitive understandings of the past and the present um, that you are hoping for. Um, now that you have completed this monumental work, uh, what other projects do you have in the works or what new projects are on the horizon for you? Uh, if you were to predict, uh, what do we have to look forward to from you in the future? Well, thank you for uh, this question. I, uh, I mean, one project that I'm already working on is, uh, is translating the Ragalegalu or selections from the Ragalegalu as a separate publication uh, from this book, right? I think um, really uh, disconnected from the book, or not disconnected in relation, but 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 with some kind of independence. The stories themselves are fantastic fascinating rich entertaining uh, and um, so I'm, I'm I really want to uh, complete the translation that will be available in English I'm working on that collaborating with my Canada teacher in Mysore RBS Sundaram um, and uh, we're addressing a completely different set of questions in, in the translation than what I had in the monograph. Um, this project is supported by the American Academy of Religions Collaborative Research Award, which I'm thankful for, and hopefully it will be out sometime soon <laughs> without committing uh, to a certain moment. Um, in addition to that, I'm, I'm, I'm curious about uh, studying a bhakti uh, devotional traditions in India, but from a cross-regional perspective, right? This is such an exciting moment in scholarship where different scholars work on different areas in India with the lens of devotion, and they are coming up with such um, different uh, picture and, and different uh, understanding. So um, together with my uh, colleague, John Coiney, um, we established the... Uh, Regional Bhakti Scholars Network, and we're uh, having an annual symposia. We're about to roll out an edited volume about Bhakti from different regional perspectives. And we're also developing a database that will be open to the public and present different scholarship of uh, bibliography of sources about Bhakti from different traditions in a way that will allow us to do cross-examinations of themes, histories, um, literature and and so on. Um, I have other projects like um, um, you know because of my past as a programmer, I developed a, a developed a platform for rapid online searches in dictionaries. Something that I think is very much required in regional languages of India. Uh, with our limited resources, we can uh, scan and make searchable so much, uh, so many lexicons and dictionaries. It's something that I'm. Uh, developing separately 
another project is to continue for another monograph, research monograph that will build on this one on Shiva saints. But um, this time, it, continuing to reading uh, Shiva text, I'm interested in taking a diachronic approach and addressing questions of historical development in this tradition uh, in different moments of its history, 12th century, 15th century, 18th century, and others, uh, which I think is uh, an exciting project to take on. Thank you. I very much look forward to seeing these uh, various projects you are working on um, come out and um, and being able to utilize them as much as I can. Um, and thank you once again for uh, for accepting the invitation to um, speak to us here. And um, I wish you the best in, in the time ahead. Well, thank you, Dean, so much for this uh, wonderful interview and the initiative. Um, all the best. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books in Hindu Studies podcast. I have been your host, Dina Cardi, and today we have been discussing Shiva's Saints, the Origins of Devotion in Kannada, according to Harihara's Ragaleglu by Gil Ben-Harut. I greatly enjoyed this book and highly recommend you obtain a copy of your own if you haven't already. I hope you enjoyed listening to our discussion today, and I look forward to you joining us again for our next New Books in Hindu Studies podcast.